Those of you who have been here the last uh, two Sundays will know that we are in a series that ends today called Hopeful Faith. The first session we looked at hopeful faith in God. The second session we looked at hopeful faith with others. And today we're going to look at the topic of hopeful faith for life. Um, We have been rooting all of this in the book of Ephesians and trying to understand uh, the way that Paul writes this book and how it applies to our life. And the subtext of the series has been how to read the Bible carefully. Uh, So as we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, uh, part of what we've been trying to figure out is when we come to reading the Bible... Uh, There are particular ways to read the Bible, and there are ways to read the Bible that are helpful and ways to read the Bible that are not helpful. Uh, And we're trying to tease that out a little bit and say, what does it look like to read the Bible carefully? We've been doing that through six windows or six grids, if you like. Uh, We've been talking about philosophy. We've been talking about grammar. Uh, We've been doing a reflective reading. We've done a word cloud and a poem and finally some implications. And so we're going to use that same grid again today with those six issues, and we're going to start with philosophy. Uh, These two stools have become uh, sort of our symbols for philosophy throughout the series, and again, I want to use these two stools to illustrate a philosophical construct that's been used over many years, uh, many centuries actually, and it's the difference between being and doing. And so if you've read any basic philosophy or have done a bit of historical look at the topic of philosophy, you'll know one of the ways that people have tried to uh, come to grips with who we are, uh, that's really what philosophy is about. It's our existence, how we understand our existence, how we understand the way we function. Uh, One of the ways to do that is to look at there's a being side of us, or if you like, our identity, and then there's a doing side of us, which is our behavior. And so every one of us as humans, and whether you're religious or not, or whether you're interested in Christian faith or not, doesn't really matter at this point, fundamentally all of us have a side that's being who we are and doing what we do. This is part of what we're like. Now the relationship between who I am and what I do is an interesting one. And so if you've done any reading, particularly historical reading, you will know lots of people have tried to figure out How does who I am or how does my being relate to what I do or how I perform or how I behave? How are these things related to one another? And so as we reflect on our existence at the beginning this morning, how do we recognize being and doing? Now when it comes to an understanding of God, one of the things that the Bible does with God is it's very important in the Bible that God is described for who he is and for what he does. And if you read the Bible carefully, you'll notice that the Bible spends a lot of time talking about who God is before it talks about what God does. And so the character of God, which is really what this stool is about, the essence of God, the character of God, the identity and being of God is absolutely crucial if we're going to understand what he does because what he does flows from who he is. And so you might have been sometimes reading the Bible a little bored or feeling like it's repetitious, this constant reference to God's character, God's essence, God's identity, who God is is, 
before it talks about what God does. And we are very preoccupied, even those of us who are Christians, very preoccupied with what God does or doesn't do. But what we have to focus on is we need to understand who he is because his doing flows from his being. His behavior flows from who he is. Using colloquial language, God's character undergirds his behavior. And so when we comment on what God does, or when we're confused about what God is doing, we need to go back to his character. And so frankly, one of my struggles in the Christian faith for many years, and it's still a struggle, sometimes I look at what's happening in the world, or sometimes I look at what God appears to be doing in the world, and my theological response is, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. I look what God does. Frankly, sometimes I read the Bible. I'm reading through a particular book in the Bible right now, and I'm reading what God does, and I'm going, what? Which is not a deep spiritual response, but what is my response to what God does? And when I can't understand what God is doing, I need to go back to his character. Have you noticed that at work? There are people at work that you think have sound character, and when they do something that doesn't make sense, you think... Okay, this makes no sense, but this is who they are. And then there's somebody else at work that does good stuff, and they have bad character, and you're suspicious of what they're doing because of who they are. This is what God is like. Who God is creates what he does. We are exactly the same. Who we are, our identity, our essence, our being, creates what we do. And so the doing is always flowing from the being. Who I am is the foundation for how I behave. And have you noticed in your life that sometimes you're in a doing continuum? You feel like you're on a treadmill. Some of you may be at work right now or on this. You're kind of go, 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 do, do, do. And you step back. And what line do you use? You say, this is not who I am. And so the doing is not the essence of who we are. The essence of who we are is our being. And to be a careful reader of the Bible, it's important that we understand that old philosophical distinction between being and doing. Now let's move to grammar. And some of you have joked with me uh, during this series and said, when we get to grammar, I have physiological responses because you remember back to the good old days of grammar where it just scared you. Uh, But let's go to grammar, and today we're going to talk about moods of the verb. Moods of the verb. And so there are four moods. Don't read down to the last line and laugh yet. Some of you are already doing that. Uh, Let's stay with the first line. There are four moods, and depending on which grammar you read, there may be five, but I'm going to stick with the analysis that there are four verb moods. And the four verb moods are subjunctive, infinitive, indicative, and imperative. I was thinking, kind of cool names to call your four children, wouldn't it? You know, if you had children, just call them those names. The subjunctive and infinitive daughters and the indicative and imperative sons that you have. These are the four moods of the verb. What is a mood of the verb? A mood of the verb reflects the action of the speaker. So when you see the, 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 the action of the speaker and you see how the speaker 
is treating this object that they are the subject of, you're talking about the mood of the verb. So I want to talk about two moods today, the indicative mood and the imperative mood. And if you've just woken up or just arrived, you'll think, what does indicative imperative have to do with the Bible? It's a fundamental construct to understand how the Bible is written. What is the indicative mood? The indicative mood is a mood of certainty and actuality. This chair is blue. That's the indicative mood. It's declaring that this is true, this is actual, this is real. So in declaring it, it, what it's saying is, this is the way things are. This is a chair, and it's blue. It's not a bicycle that's red. It's a chair that is blue. That is the indicative mood. So when I use the phrase, Dina Gartner is a fine person, I'm not phrasing that as she might be, or let's have a vote on it, or let's do a survey to see if she is. I think Dina Gartner is a fine person, and most of you do as well. And if you don't, you can come and talk to me after, and I'll give you some reasons why I think that. Or maybe you could talk to her and resolve your conflict. Um, <laughs> Dina, do you want to wave just for those of you who, who don't know you? Just, just wave, Dina. It's all right. You can put your... There she is. Yeah, I see that hand. Um, so I told Dina before the service that there's going to be a point that she really needs today so to listen carefully. So we're now past that point, Dina, almost, but you're coming up again a little later. So the indicative mood is describing things as they are, right? It's the mood that says this is reality. Dina Gartner is a fine person is the indicative mood. Now let's go to the imperative mood. What is the imperative mood? The imperative mood is a mood of request or command. It's a should. So when I say, you should take Dina out for an expensive dinner, that is not indicative. Indicative is, Dina is a fine person. Imperative mood is, you should take Dina out for an expensive dinner. And what I'm now doing is my attitude towards you is a should, is an ought, is a this is what you need to do. So the imperative mood is actually saying to you, and in this context, Dina is a fine person, you should take Dina out for an expensive dinner. Actually, what I'm doing is I'm building the imperative on the indicative. Now, just listen to this in your mind for a moment. Dina is a terrible person. You should take her out for dinner. You think, what? Like, why would I go out for dinner with Dina when she's a terrible person? Dina is a terrible conversationalist, and she's brutal over food. That's the indicative mood. You should take her out for dinner. You think, why would I take Dina out for dinner when she's a terrible conversationalist? People walking in now are thinking, am I in a church? What are we talking about here? Who is this Dina? Um, if I'm going to take her out for dinner, the indicative gives me the foundation upon which I will do what I need to do. Indicatives precede imperatives. And so in essence, what we're talking about here is what we're saying is that when you find out the way things are, then you can move into the way things should be. When you find out what reality is, then you can say this is what ought to happen because the indicative is the foundation for the imperative. So when the Bible comes to us and says, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. There are some churches around who specialize in this. This church is not one of them, and I'm glad for that. It's one of the reasons I like being here. But there are some churches that specialize in telling people what to do. There are Christian organizations that specialize in telling people what to do. 
There are Christian schools that specialize in telling people what to do. And it's just a list. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And they cover it up in policies or parameters or whatever else. But it's just a long list of things to do. And some of us grew up with that kind of Christian faith. Christians do this. You know, I grew up with the don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Uh, That was kind of what I grew up with, right? If you didn't drink, if you didn't smoke, if you didn't chew and you didn't go with girls who do, that was deeply Christian. Okay, that's a way to be Christian. It's a list of doing. But that's not the way the Bible is written. The Bible is not written, and if you're connecting here, the Bible is not written first and foremost in the imperative mood. The Bible is first written in the indicative mood. It says, this is the way things are, therefore do. This is who God is, therefore do. This is who you are, therefore do. And doing without being or imperative without indicative, is not Christian. Let me say that again. Doing without being, and imperative without indicative, is not Christian. The Bible is not written that way. The Bible is not a list of things to do. And if we preach that kind of Bible, and if we we approach the Bible that way, we're going to miss what the Bible says. And so the, the whole idea of the indicative and the imperative and the being and the doing needs to be understood in the context of what the Bible says. And we need to be very careful in reading the Bible that we don't turn indicatives into imperatives. So the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit would be a classic example of this. You know, Blessed are the merciful, for they will inherit the earth. So let's get a five-step program on how to be merciful. Let's have four seminars on how to be merciful. Let's work really, really, really hard on trying to be merciful. You're turning an indicative into an imperative. What does it say? It says, the meek will inherit the earth. That is an indicative statement. It's the way it is. Those who are meek will inherit the earth. And I suggest to you in the Beatitudes, the assumption is this is the way kingdom people live. They are meek, they will inherit the earth. It's indicative. Go to the the nine fruit of the Spirit, and you come to the kindness word, and you think, oh, I'm not kind enough. I need to to find a workshop on kindness. How can I get a workshop on kindness? I need to work on my kindness. Let's put an alliteration together with K and I and N and D, and let's be more kind, and let's let's be a church that's kind, and let's have five steps to kindness, and three steps to kindness, and 17 steps to kindness. Listen to the beatitude. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. It's indicative. It's not imperative. We do need to work on our kindness, but we work on our kindness on the premise that if the Spirit is in us, and if we are living in step with the Spirit, kindness will be a natural manifestation of that. You don't go into an orchard and command the apples to produce. You don't go into a winery and tell the the grapes on the count of three that they need to show up on the branch. You don't do that because it's fruit. And the biblical notion is that these things are fruit. Yes, we work on them, but we work on them on the premise that they are. This is part of what it means to be Christian. So let's do a reflective reading. This is the long section, and I want you to notice three things. And as we've done the last couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, looking for particular things. So again, this requires concentration and preparedness and listening well and reflecting, maybe eyes closed, maybe eyes open, you can look at this for yourself and see what's best. But here's the three things that I want you to notice. And those of you in here the last two weeks will feel the drama of this, maybe more than those of you who have just been here today. 
I want you to notice this reading is completely and totally unlike the last two weeks. Remember I said that last two weeks when we read those two sections? It doesn't tell us anything what to do. You read chapter 1 and verse 1 of Ephesians through to chapter 4 and verse 16, you don't know what to do. It doesn't tell you anything to do. It doesn't tell you how to behave. It doesn't tell you how to function. There's no doing in that. Now we're going to get to a section where all of that indicative now has been stated. This is who God is. This is who you are. Now do. And listen to all the imperatives in this section as we look at it. The second thing is, and if you followed the grammar, please note this. Notice how the imperative is linked closely with the indicative. Notice how when the Bible tells us what to do, it also tells us the why. The what and the why relationship is an interesting one here because at the core, what this section does is gives us things to do as Christians, but undergirding it is this sense of why this is important. And then lastly, and I find this so encouraging, I hope it doesn't offend you, the Christian life is ordinary and not spectacular. When you look at all the things this section tells us to do, it doesn't say live a spectacular life, live a flamboyant life. It just says live your life in relationships. And as you live your life in relationships, do this based on the indicative. This is the way it is. This is who God is. This is who you are. So let's look at this together. And again, it's a long passage, but listen for those things. How much doing is in here? and how the imperative and the indicative are so closely linked. So let's be silent for a moment and be prepared to listen well to this passage. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you've learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it's said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then a central verse from which there's issues around marriage, parenting, and employment. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now, I don't know what that feels like to you emotively. This is not a series where we've been preaching through a passage, but rather experiencing the passage. This is a massive imperative bath. 
We have just had a huge imperative bath in this last six or seven minutes. The stuff that we need to do is unbelievable in this passage. Do this, be this, do 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 this. There's a ton of doing. But imagine if we started here. Imagine if we listed all the things we were supposed to do. Most of us would go, why on earth? And we would ask the, what is the why behind the what? Right? That's what we'd ask. Like, why do we have to do all these things? Well, when you understand who God is, and when you understand that we're doing this together, and you understand that the first three-plus chapters in Ephesians are indicative, then these imperatives are built on it. This is not a list of things to do. This is a natural outflow. Listen, this is a natural outflow when you understand who you are. And when you understand who you are, these things don't need to be worked on as much as they need to be expressed as fruit. So let's look at this passage as a word cloud. And again, those of you unfamiliar with word clouds, uh, the large words, the text that I've just read to you, I did a word cloud analysis on. And so the big words are the words that show up most frequently, and the small words are the words that show up less frequently. What strikes you as you see this? And again, this can be a simple, just visual analysis, or maybe there's something else you want to say. But what jumps out for you when you see this word cloud in this massive list of imperatives of things we're supposed to do? Yeah, I want to say brilliant answer, but people would think I'm closing up to you because we've lived together for a long time. Okay, I'll tell you at home. <laughs> Oh, I can't hear you. I'm old. <laughs> I didn't tell you the answer. Oh, I'm good. This is how we talk at home, too. <laughs> you're mumbling again. <laughs> no, no, you're mumbling. Okay. And our next series is on marriage. <laughs> so, would somebody else like to speak more politely about the word cloud uh, with more respect for the speaker? Somebody else, what do, you, what do you see or what jumps out at you? Evil. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting, right? You hear all those imperatives and yet God is still dominant in, it, in our doing, right? Sh- Shelley. But I think that's it. That, that there, no, that's good. And there's the unspectacular side of it, right? Like to live as a Christian, it's like, how are you doing with your anger? How are you doing with your kindness? How are you dealing with your gentleness at work? You know, that's, that's living the Christian life. It's not the spectacular life. It's the ordinary life with regular people. Anything else that jumps out? Yeah, Clayton. Great observation. Yeah, the therefore is, you know, if you, I don't know if you're a grammar geek, but for those of us who are grammar geeks, one of the great things about the therefore is therefore is usually follow an indicative and precede an imperative. I'm going to yell in here, so for those of you who are a little sleepy, uh, if you know the book of Romans, 16 chapters, first 11 chapters, who is God, what is sin, who's Jesus, what's Israel, what's the Gentiles, what does it mean to live the Christian life? You go through all 11 chapters, and you read the 11 chapters, it doesn't tell you at all what to do, and then chapter 12, verse 1 goes, therefore... By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So for 11 chapters, it's like, let's let's set the table here. And then 12 and 1, therefore, 
live it out, right? And sadly, many of us are living in 12 to 16 and not living in 1 to 11 of Romans and missing that. So let's summarize this with another poem. Some of you have already read the poem and had your laugh. But uh, for those of you, and I think there are some extra sheets from the last two weeks for those of you who weren't here. Two weeks ago, we looked at Margaret Fishback's uh, Powers poem, Footprints in the Sand. And then last week, we looked at the poem that I wrote uh, called Together. And today, I want to read this poem, which the author will not admit to who they are, um, for maybe reasons that are obvious. And if you're offended by this poem, um, my theological response is get over it. Butt prints in the sand. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. The footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared, and I asked the Lord, what have we here? These prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, For miles, I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed. You would not grow. The walk of faith, you would not know. So I got tired. I got fed up, and there I dropped you on your butt. (laughs) Because in life, there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. Now, those of you with theological sensibilities will agree with me that this isn't completely accurate theology. I don't think God actually does this, but it does make the point that we do need to be doing the Christian life, not just living in the indicative. So, chat with your neighbor for a few moments. What strikes you the most this morning? What jumps out at you? What's the most significant implication of this for you? I'll give you a couple of minutes to have that conversation, and then we'll wind to the end. So chat with your neighbor. Okay, let me interrupt you. Three implications for me. Uh, These are just personal. They may not resonate with you, but they certainly do for me around this theme of hope. I think the first one is that I need, in my own life, somebody to tell me what to focus on. Some would call it goal setting. I prefer just what I should focus on. What should I be preoccupied by? It seems to me that our lives need to be preoccupied by being and doing, by the indicative and the imperative. If we only live our lives in the indicative or only live our lives in the imperative, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. In Ephesians, about 50%, almost literally, 50% of the entire book is about who God is and who we are. 50% of the book is about what we need to do in light of that. That's a good way to live life to spend time and focus and meditation and reflection and prayer on who God is and who we are and spend another 50% on what we need to do about that. To read the Bible that way, to not go to the Bible as some kind of a simple uh, pragmatic book of what to do or not to read the Bible as some obscure theology that doesn't have anything to do with doing. To read read the Bible fully that way and to recognize it. In our singing and preaching at church, It seems to me the ideal at church is not that we sing and preach about what we should do or we sing and preach about who God is and who we are, but we sing and preach equally about both. 
It seems to me in the church generally, I'm not talking about CAP particularly when I say this, in the church generally, we still have a lot of extremism in this. We have churches that only sing about who God is and who we are, and there's no doing side of it. We have other churches and other uh, ways of doing ministry that focus on what we need to do and miss the indicative. And so if we sung and preached and read scripture and lived our lives that way, it seems to me that there would be a lot more hope in that because it's not all about what I do. Secondly, for me, is activism, the noun activism, needs an adjective Christian in front of it. What does it mean to be a Christian activist? There's a lot of activism right now. Even in our own city, there's a lot of activism going on. People very active in doing things. There's nothing wrong with activism, but activism now needs Christian adjective in front of it. Because Christian activism is actually to put the what and the why together. It's actually to say that being a Christian and understanding who God is and understanding who I am that moves then into activity and into activism means the activism is influenced by the fact that I understand who God is and I understand who I am. It's it's language, if I can use grammatical language, it's having a why for the what. It's not enough to say I'm an activist, but if I have a why for the activism, then I will have a full-orbed activism that has the indicative and the imperative together. And then lastly, for those of you who may not identify with Christian faith, and you've kind of subtly slipped into the mindset that you look at Christians and you say, well, look what they do, and you look at yourself and say, well, look what I do, you're missing the being-doing tension. Being a Christian is not just the doing. Being a Christian is the being. I would want to say to you that many of us live beside neighbors who sin a lot less than we who are Christians do. Many of us do. Many of us have colleagues at work. Some of us have worked in secular space and in the Christian space. I've worked with more unspiritual people in Christian circles and more spiritual people in secular circles who have no interest in Jesus. But you see, the issue isn't what we're doing. The issue is how much mercy have we received. And when you understand the Christian faith, you recognize there's hope in that because I don't have to list all the things I'm doing or compare them with other people's list of doing. I recognize that undergirding that is a God who loves and forgives and is merciful and that makes it different. So for me, this is a hopeful faith. Hopeful faith in God, hopeful faith with others, and today, hopeful faith for life. Amen.